Hey everybody, this is Jimmy Humphrey with Jimmy's Table Podcast, jimmystable.com. I am your host, Jimmy Humphrey, where I like to have conversations about faith, life, culture, and sometimes food. Today is episode six, where we're going to talk about defending your faith. You know, I think it is necessary as Christians for us to really have an intellectual grasp and understanding of not only what we believe as Christians, the content of our faith and the, the facts and the figures of what we believe, but it's also important for us to understand why we believe what we believe. It's not just enough to know, but it's we to know what we believe, but we need to know the why as well. Um, and I fear that as Christians, that many of us are kind of living in our own little bubble, especially of those of us like me uh, who grew up homeschooled and lives in the Southeast, lives in the Bible Belt in North Carolina, um, <laughs> where uh, in a little town called Waxhaw, uh, which really isn't that little, it's just a, uh, it's a suburb of Charlotte, you know, and Charlotte has over 2 million people in the greater metro area, uh, from what I understand. But anyway, um, <laughs> so not so little. Um, but, you know, I, I, I live in a little uh, bubble of Christianity in the area I live in, in uh, the greater Charlotte area. From what I understand, Charlotte has more churches per capita than just about anywhere in the country, and frankly, anywhere in the world. Um, which is amazing. And, but, you know, if, if you live here, that doesn't seem amazing um, to, to say that. Uh, we have a church pretty much on every street corner. Um, and new churches are coming in all the time where I live. And, frankly, we're running out of places to put churches. Uh, I know uh, just from <laughs> uh, my personal church that I go to, which is New City Church in Charlotte, uh, you know, they had talks of, of expanding one of our campuses and, and putting another one in the area, a uh, multi-campus sort of thing. And uh, they eventually kind of gave up on the looks for that because there wasn't anywhere else to, to put a church for the time being. Uh, so they, you know, kick, kick the can down the road and look for another day. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we have that many churches where I live. Uh, so many churches we... We don't know where to put the next one because there's just so many. Uh, that's a stark contrast to when I was traveling for my company uh, and working on the road some. I remember going to uh, southern Maine. <laughs> and in Maine, there are hardly any churches. And in fact, when I was driving down the road at some point, it occurred to me that it had... And I was driving in a major city uh, in Maine, well you know, as big as cities get in Maine. Uh, and it occurred to me at some point that I had probably been about 20 minutes or so driving on this main uh, thoroughfare of a city road that I was driving on. And it had been probably more than 20 minutes or so since I had seen any sign whatsoever of a church, which was, you know, pretty humbling uh, and heartbreaking at the same time, at least from my perspective. And so, you know... I think about that because there's a lot of people that don't live in this bubble. And frankly, you know, as much as I live in my nice little Bible Belt bubble, Christian bubble, 
uh, growing up homeschooled and, and having Christian influences, uh, you know, all my life, um, or most of my life, rather. You know, at the end of the day, there is a rise in the secular nature of our culture. There is a very real sense in which the bubble that many of us, especially in the South, Southeast area, as Christians, are starting to see burst. And that bubble is popping, uh, and I think it's going to cause many of us to have a rude awakening, um, because we live, you know, relatively sheltered lives where the only attack on our faith is pretty much, you know, maybe something we might see on Facebook or, you know, some distant, um, you know, figure, political figure, public figure who might, you know, take some bold stance against Jesus or the Bible and say something really uh, harsh about both, you know, our, 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 but, our, but to have somebody point their finger in our face um, and say, your God is a lie, uh, it's all made up, it's a fanciful story, um, and there's nothing of substance to your faith, and it's no different than the, all the other thousands of religions that came before it, um, and it'll be gone one day just like those were. You know, that's not something too many of us have probably ever dealt directly with in our faith. Um, so I believe, and if you look at like a Gallup poll, and there, I have a link to it in uh, the podcast notes and on my page at jimmystable.com, um, there's been an increase of secularization in our societies. Um, I'm 36 years old right now, and according to the Gallup poll research, um, the number of people who confess to having no faith whatsoever and falling in some sort of atheist or agnostic or just general, I don't really know, uh, sort of uh, view of religion has more than doubled since the early 2000s when uh, I was getting out of high school and going into college. Over 20% of the current population, according to the latest Gallup poll in 2018, uh, does not believe in anything about faith or Christianity um, or Jesus. They, they just don't. Some of them, you know, militantly so, and some of them just, you know, probably casually so. Uh, but either way, there is an increase in the number of people who don't even believe in God in our nation, in America. Um, and so you're, you're seeing this trend double, you know, in just the, the past uh, two decades. And I think that's alarming and it should, you know, not alarming in the sense of, oh my gosh, we're losing our faith, we're losing our values, or anything having to do with, you know, some sort of patriotic Americana, we need to get God back in the schools type of uh, mentality. But no, just a realization and sobriety that you and I need to be aware of, that there are now a lot of people, increasingly so, who no longer believe in God in our culture. And that's doubled in such a short time. And, you know, I'm 36 years old right now, so I wouldn't be surprised if by the time I'm, you know, in my 50s and 60s and towards the end of my life, if that, that number doesn't double yet again. Um, and it's something that I think we need to be aware of because we're going to see as Christians an increasing number of people who are asking hard questions um, and saying some pretty bold things in response to our confession that we believe that there is one God, 
existing in three persons, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he was crucified for our sins and resurrected after three days. There's going to be a lot of people challenging that. There's going to be a lot of people who boldly question our faith. And I think as Christians, we owe it um, to them to, to um, provide an answer to not only what we believe as Christians, but why, believe, why we believe it. And, you know, I have some, I've assembled some quotes, uh, and you can get them also in the, the, the notes if you want to, um, or at jimmystable.com. But I've assembled some quotes um, from some individuals who have been increasingly hostile to the Christian faith and religion in general um, that are great philosophical and scientific leaders um, who have been recognized and quoted by many, many people over the years. Now, some of these quotes are older. They're not recent. But some of them are recent. I have a quote from Karl Marx. Karl Marx said, Religious suffering is, at one and the same time, the expression of real suffering, in a protest against real suffering. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of a soulless conditions. It is the opiate of the masses. Voltaire, a nice enlightenment philosopher, once said, Every sensible man, every honorable man, must hold the Christian sect in horror. Christianity is the most ridiculous, the most absurd, and bloody religion that has ever infected the world. Nothing can be more contrary to religion and the clergy than reason and common sense. And if we believe the absurdities, we shall continue to commit atrocities. Friedrich Nietzsche, great philosopher, once said, God is dead and remains dead, and I have killed him. And the late recent Stephen Hawking of fame from Big Bang Theory and the guy that kind of had a robot voice because he was uh, paralyzed um, and a quadriplegic and he couldn't talk, so he talked through, you know, a uh, computer that gave him that very robot-y sound that everybody's got a familiar with. Um, and I don't say that in any disrespect to Stephen Hawking, but just so you know what I'm talking about. A uh, famous astrophysicist, uh, one of the great, regarded as one of the greatest scientists of all time, um, the greatest intellectuals of all time, if, in, in a recent time especially. Uh, Stephen Hawking said, and he said this shortly before, you know, dying. Uh, he said, heaven is a fairy tale invented for people who are afraid of the dark. You know, we have a world that's willing to make bold statements about religion. And some of us may be very dismissive of them and want to be very just argumentative and, and you know, jerkish towards them and, you know, take our position as, you know, the majority of the population who, you know, still believes in God and Jesus and that sort of stuff. And we may have this tendency to talk down to them. But, you know, I think instead of having such an attitude, we need to, to have an attitude that's more respectful and polite uh, in our tone in our conversation because um, whether you want to realize it or not or whether you want to acknowledge that it's happening or not, um, we're seeing a world that is increasingly getting uh, more hostile to our faith as Christians. And I believe we need to follow uh, what the Apostle Peter taught in 1 Peter 3.15 where he said, to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks 
to give an account for the hope that is in you, and yet to do so with gentleness and reverence. And so, you know, the Apostle Peter told us that we need to be ready to make a defense of our faith. That word he used for defense in the Greek was originally apologia, uh, from which we get our modern term apologetics, uh, in which we, you know, offer a reason for why we believe what we believe as Christians. It's, not, it's just not enough to say what we believe, but the Apostle Peter says we need to be ready to make a defense of why we believe what we believe. As Christians, we need to be able to explain to people the, the math, I guess you could say, of, of why we believe what we believe and how that is ultimately true. And you know, I find it interesting that if, if I were to ask you as a Christian why it is that you believe what you believe, um, you know, I think most of us would tell a very similar story I've asked it of myself, and I've asked it of many others. I asked it recently on uh, the Jimmy's Table Facebook page, um, where several people responded when I asked them, well, why do you believe in God? Why do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Um, Lisa said that she never had a problem believing in Jesus, because at some point she felt like Jesus spoke to her, um, and she wasn't saved. Um, yet, when she felt Jesus speak to her, she said she was converted in a a blink of an eye um, and she had no problem believing in what the Bible and Jesus had to say because she felt like he was talking to her um, you know and that's that's a pretty radical claim you may have mixed feelings about that um, whether you believe Jesus still speaks to people or not but uh, you know that's Lisa's testimony um, so that's why Lisa says she believes what um, she believes Jeremy said that, you know, apart from the historical reliability of the Gospels and the claims of the Gospels, he says he began believing in 1989 when he first started reading the Bible. Um, and, you know, over a couple years of reading the Bible, uh, he believes he had, you know, an encounter with God through just simply reading the Gospels and, um, you know, kind of seeing what they said. And he just felt like he had an encounter with God, and from that, um, you know, a very subjective sort of experience, uh, he says it forever uh, solidified in his mind about the claims and the historical reliability of the claims of Jesus and God and the resurrection. Um, and, you know, he just felt through much soul-searching after that encounter that these things must be true. And then another guy, Corey, who we quoted on last week's podcast, <laughs> uh, said that he originally simply believed because his parents taught him. That's what the Bible believes. And he's like, well, the Bible is true, and I accept that it's true. So he said he believed uh, from, I guess, a very young age um, from his childhood. And that was enough for him. Although he says, you know, years later, as he, you know, started questioning some things, he started digging around and some of the Bible about, you know, historical quotes and, and, and you know, things of that nature. Um, and he says, I just found it through, after much searching, to confirm what I believed already uh, to be true. Um, and, you know, those stories could probably be multiplied in abundance. Um, I have my own personal story, which I'll talk about a little bit later. Um, but, you know, that's, that's where most people are at. Most people are not at the place where they sat there and 
said, well, I started with X, Y, and Z historical and philosophical claims, and therefore I became a Christian. Although there are some people who do testify that. But I think by and large, most of us would say we believe because of a, a very subjective experience. And that's all fine and good. That's awesome. Uh, and, you know, I don't have any question about people who claim very subjective experiences. My, my experience uh, in coming to faith was a very personal and subjective experience as well. Um, but, you know, being able to say, well, you know, I had an encounter with Jesus in some, you know, mystical way is all fine and good. But that doesn't quite put up a defense of why we ultimately believe as Christians what we claim to believe. Um, I believe, you know, our faith at the end of the day, it is not only philosophically uh, based and has some truth to it based on, you know, philosophical speculations and metaphysics um, and, and, and that sort of arena, but it also has historical uh, support as well. And the point of today's podcast is ultimately to look at some of those historical and philosophical proofs um, that we need to be prepared um, to offer the world. We need to be able to show the world not only the uh, what of our faith, but we need to be able to explain to them uh, the why behind what we believe. And at the end of the day, it's kind of like a math problem. Uh, when you were in school, uh, your teacher said, you know, solve X, Y, or Z, and, you know, at the end of the day, show me how you got your solution. And I think we live in a world that simply wants to know today um, not only what we believe, but uh, the solution, how we, how we arrived at our um, solution and, and what the math behind that was to, to show the work. And I feared that perhaps many of us are not in a place to show the work, to show why there is a reasonable defense um, to what we believe as Christians. And let me get this straight though. When I say reasonable defense of what we believe and why we believe it, um, you know, I'm not pretending to have like some ironclad 100% um, thing that you can just look down at and say, well, you know, there's the evidence is overwhelming and, and, and demands a verdict sort of um, response. Although I do believe the evidence is strong. I, I do, however, though, believe that at the end of the day, um, you will have to have uh, a kind of a leap of faith at some point to believe what, you know, to believe what we claim as Christians is true. Um, but that doesn't mean that um, what we believe is without good reason. Um, and at the end of the day, that even though it may take a small leap of faith uh, to get to what we believe, um, that why we believe what we believe is, you know, ultimately a very reasonably concluded thing. So let me get some first some uh, rules of the road before we get here. When when you're talking to people about your faith, you know, just as the Apostle Peter said, we need to speak to them respectfully and with humility. Um, we need to ultimately treat whoever we're talking about, even if they're the most militant atheist in the world. Um, and they, you know, go ahead and say some of the things that we read about from Voltaire and uh, Friedrich Nietzsche and Stephen Hawking and Karl Marx and all these guys. You know, at the end of the day, they are created in God's image. 
and so we should therefore treat them with utmost respect and humility. We should approach them and talk to them as a fellow image bearer, as somebody created in the image of God who is worthy of respect, no matter how blasphemous what they might say is. Uh, no matter how arrogant and condescending and rude and disrespectful they may be. As Christians, first and foremost, we must show respect and humility and love towards those individuals um, and to speak to them uh, in, an, in a way that Christ would himself if he were here to do it. Um, because at the end of the day, You'll never convince somebody to believe what we believe as Christians by calling them a butthole or treating them like a jerk or dismissing them as some sort of libtard or, you know, other condescending uh, attitude. And not only will you not, con you know, you can't, you can't convince somebody doing that. Let's be real. That immediately puts people on the defensive and it shows you're not actually interested in having a real conversation. Uh, because at the end of the day, as Christians, we need to show that we are interested in having real conversations. We need to approach people as individuals who are also in search for the truth. And now, we may claim to have the truth in, in Jesus Christ, um, but you know, at the end of the day, we still need to be willing to show that we have an inquisitive side about it. We need to be able to willing, uh, we need to be willing rather to, to be intellectually honest and curious uh, to ask hard questions, uh, not only of ourselves, but with the individuals that we're in conversation with. Um, we always have to be willing to, to grow in our knowledge of the truth. And at the same time, we also need to be willing to admit, hey, you know, I don't know. I don't have the answer to this. And, and to say things like, you have a great point. Um, because if we were to simply act like the evidence is absolutely overwhelming and that there's not uh, genuine um, arguments against the things we believe as Christians, um, then not only are we never going to have uh, any um, sort of, uh, you know, gravitas or weight uh, with this person and, and we won't earn their respect um, in what we say and they'll never you know, grow in any curiosity whatsoever about our faith. So if we just come across as somebody who's a know-it-all and has the answer for everything and, uh, you know, resorts to cheap uh, answers that you can get quickly from looking up something on Wikipedia or Google and not doing the real homework ourselves, then no wonder the, the number of people who don't believe anything regarding God or Jesus and the resurrection um, don't believe uh, because we aren't really giving them, you know, a, a genuine, sincere, authentic uh, defense and reason as to why we believe. We're just being dismissive of them and we're not treating them as real people who may or may not be in search for truth. Uh, so l let's just get that out there. We need, we need to come with a uh, humbleness of heart, uh, a gentleness of spirit, and an intellectually curious mind. So what are some proofs, you might ask, of God's ex existence? Well, first and foremost, I want to say that, you know, the existence of God is a study of philosophy and metaphysics. God is not subject to a microscope. We can't sit there and empirically and objectively prove the existence of God from looking at all sorts of data and observable points 
um, and, and that sort of stuff. You know, God is not subject <laughs> to a microscope. Uh, but that doesn't mean we can't ask hard questions about the existence of God and how anybody could possibly believe in something that they can't touch, see, feel, or hear, or, you know, something that's otherwise subject to all the senses and other observable data, which is why we, at the end of the day, have philosophy and metaphysics. So here are some general um, philosophical proofs of the existence of God. The first is the so-called first cause argument. And it's pretty basic, and it's something we probably all know. Everything, at the end of the day, comes from something. God whoever he is, <laughs> according to philosophy, is the unmoved mover from which all created things originate. Before I existed, my parents existed. Before my parents existed, their parents existed. And that can go on for a thousand generations to whatever, um, you know, preceded all of that. You know, at the end of the day, there's a, a first thing that causes the effect. Um, and the first cause argument ultimately argues that the first cause of all things, all created things, uh, came into this world um, simply from the one who created it, and that would be God. And that's pretty much the first cause argument. Now, you may accept it, you may reject it, and there are good reasons, uh, you know, even <laughs> scientific reasons perhaps, uh, to reject it. There would be some, especially in the physics community, who would argue that uh, there was no first cause, uh, that all the world and all the matter that all has existed, has always existed and will continue to always exist for all eternity, just as it existed from eternity past. Um, so no, so consider such things. Uh, but that, that is, you know, a general, uh, you know, whatever you might say about the study of physics and the conclusions that physicists have made about the, the nature of matter and where it came from, if it came from anywhere, um, at the end of the day, we all uh, have to, you know, talk about um, philosophical reasons why God exists. And the, one of the arguments is simply the first cause. So, you know, take the first cause argument. As I think most people, at the end of the day, believe it's a pretty reasonable argument. And I think that's what keeps a lot of people from being militant atheists. Um, but do realize there are some considerations as to, you know, maybe why this isn't necessarily the best argument in the world. But I believe it to be a reasonable one. So anyway, next is the watchmaker argument. Um, the watchmaker argument basically says the universe is extremely complicated and well-organized, and there's clearly numerous laws that cause it to, to function, uh, almost like clockwork, you could say, thus the watchmaker. And people say, well, if clocks don't just, watches don't just magically assemble themselves, they don't do such uh, in all their complexity, unless there is someone to put them together. Um, and since this world shows evidence of ironclad physical mathematical laws that govern the way the universe operates, um, this is therefore uh, you know, proof of the existence of God because the world is just too complicated to have randomly assembled itself. Um, and this argument would, you know, it's commonly said, uh, that in the watchmaker argument, you can look at Earth, for example. If Earth were only like 2 or 3% or whatever it is exactly closer to the sun, um, then Earth would be uh, some place that you could not simply inhabit. It would be unha uninhabitable because it would be too hot, and life as we know it 
simply would not exist. But we are, and according to scientists, from what I understand, right in the sweet spot of how close the Earth can be in proximity to the sun to support the existence of life. And not only support the existence of life, but cause life to flourish in a very abundant manner. Um, so, you know, that's pretty remarkable. Just, you know, a couple percent closer and we would not exist. But the fact is we do exist. And we exist in an amazingly complex world and 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 we are such ourselves complex creatures that only not only have um consciousness of our own existence and an awareness that we exist in the world and in the universe um but we have the ability to look back through history and through science and to to theorize and postulate about how we as as this world came into existence uh, which is pretty remarkable that, you know, if all this was random and by happenstance and through merely chemical, biological, um, physical um, randomness, if all this just existed because of that, that's amazing that all those random events happened for eons to produce a creature that was able to reflect upon its own existence and how it came into existence. You know what? That's a pretty incredible argument, the watchmaker, in, in my opinion. Um, but you know, so there would be some who would argue that uh, the the world isn't as organized as it appears, and you know, there's chaos, and there's a lot of things we don't understand, and that the watchmaker argument is just a gross simplification of something for which we ultimately don't have answers for, um, and that we're just you know defaulting to say. God exists because the world's complex. Well, you know, they would say, no, that's too generalized that, you know, we exist because of X, Y, and Z that has happened in the past. Uh, uh, so, you know, I think there's, you know, room for an intellectual stalemate here. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I still personally find the watchmaker argument um, personally kind of reasonable. Again, um, the world is an infinitely complex place and we would not exist, I believe, unless... Uh, you know, somebody had organized our existence and made it possible for us to reflect on why we're here and how we got here. Um, that's an amazing thing. And I just do not believe at all that just random happenstance from the violence of the universe just happened to create uh, not only life to begin with, but uh, a creature capable of reflecting upon its own existence and how it came into being. Um, I just find that absurd at the end of the day to to say otherwise um so anyway so next is the moral argument uh i i, f I find this 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 one it's not as strong as i would like but it's definitely something that resonates as true to me um c.s lewis once said that he once argued against the existence of god because the universe just seems so cruel and unjust. But then at one point he reflected upon this idea and said, well, where did this idea that I have come that there is such a thing as just and unjust? A man, he says, does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line to begin with. So we have a sense, according to Lewis, of right and wrong, of just and unjust, and that um, is a sense of a moral argument that we wouldn't have the sense of moral goodness and perfection um, unless it came to us from God. 
Uh, but because we do have a sense of just and unjust, of goodness, of perfection, um, even though we may disagree on the specifics of morality at the end of the day, and the specifics of what is just and unjust, and what is good and what is perfect, um, we do have this sort of innate uh, wiring as human beings that there are such things as moral goodness and perfection and justice and injustice. Um, and, you know, we may disagree on the specific of ethics, but at the end of the day, we, do, we agree that such a thing exists. Well, Lewis basically argues that we wouldn't have such an idea unless such an idea came from God. Well, you know, I, I, it's reasonable to conclude such, but, you know, at the end of the day, somebody could dismiss it and just say that things like moral goodness and perfection are, um, you know, just social delusions that we have as human beings and as part of it are imperfect nature <laughs> as humans. Uh, it's a social thing, somebody could say. Um, and that's why, you know, for whatever sense of morality we may have, that's why we all disagree on what is moral and just and why uh, mores and uh, things like that change over time. Um, because it's just something we have as humans and is ultimately, uh, you know, just something we have as social creatures uh, so that we can relate to society and others at the end of the day. So, while I, I find some cool stuff about that argument, you know, I almost, to some degree, see where an atheist or an agnostic individual could be very dismissive of that argument. But like I said, it has some appeal to me, so I've tossed it in there as, you know, something I reasonably use to defend and explain my faith. Um, and then another philosophical argument, and it's not really, I would say, a philosophical argument per se, but it's more about uh, just the common experience of mankind and what we have um, just, you know, kind of recognized over the years. It's, it's not necessarily a rational argument. It's much more an emotional argument for sure. Um, but the argument basically says, look at a sunset. <laughs> look at the beauty of creation. How could there be all this beauty in this world? even for all the chaos and death and destruction that exists in this world. But how could there be a something as beautiful and transcendent experience as a sunset or the things that we see in nature? And I would almost call this, you know, not only just a general argument that, you know, the, the I guess you could say it's a transcendence argument uh, that, you know, people experience a sense of transcendence from nature and other things uh, in this world. And, you know, it, it makes us feel like there's something out there bigger than all of us um, and that we're somehow connected to all of that. Um, it, it's something that's kind of an intuitive gut emotional feeling that we have. But you could also say, you know, this is something the Bible itself argues, like in Psalms 19.1, where uh, the psalmist says that the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse declaring the work of his hands. Or what the Apostle Paul argues about in Romans 1.19 and 20, where he says, that which is known about God is evident in them. Uh, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, have clearly been seen and understood what, through what has been made, um, so that all are without excuse. And I find that, you know, a, a, you know, I think if we're honest about ourselves and who we are as people, that, 
you know, there's something about that that just resonates, I think, with, with all uh, people. That there is some sort of transcendent um, experience out there that we've all, you know, more or less experienced at some point in our lives. And philosophically, we would argue that transcendent experience is God himself um, and a very, you know, vague philosophical uh, expression. And now we would like to get to the most important point of proof of God's existence and the, the things of why we believe as Christians. Um, and this has nothing to do with abstract philosophical arguments, in my opinion. But ultimately, is the argument that we believe that God is true. And why we believe is what we believe is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I think that puts flesh and blood and concreteness to our faith, because I believe in God's existence, not just because of some sort of general abstract philosophical views about the existence of God, because those views at the end of the day, they still don't get it, get us to the God of the Bible. At best, those arguments could be made by deists, or they could be made by Muslims, or they could be made by Jews, or they could be made by any number of other religions about the existence of God. There's nothing special about any of those philosophical arguments about having to do, per se, with um, Jesus Christ and Christianity. But I believe, at the end of the day, if you really want to prove that God exists, you have to point everybody to Jesus. And that Jesus, and his death, and his resurrection especially, is the ultimate proof of God's existence. Because I think it would be pretty reasonable to say that if a dead man came back to life and is still alive today, um, then, you know, that <laughs> is pretty concrete proof of the existence of God. And personally speaking, this is the proof that I like to offer first and foremost about the existence of God. Um, because it gets right to the heart of the matter. Um, and really, you know, puts Christ at the center of it all. Because as a Christian, I don't really care too much if people believe in some vague philosophical uh, creation of God uh, sort of thing. I, I don't care if they believe there's a you know something way out in the sky somewhere or something that they can't relate to. Um, but you know, it's sort of a deistic view that God you know started this universe at some point, wound it like a top and let it go, um, and here we are today. Um, I don't really care about that, although I think, you know, that's important. But at the end of the day, uh, I'm looking for people to believe in Jesus, to know God. Not just to believe about God, but to know God for who he is and what he has done um, and how people can have a relationship with him today. And I think the proof of that is Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. And uh, that is something that we ultimately have to put out there as the most serious claim to why we believe what we believe. But how do we know that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, you might ask? Um, how, how do we know that? Why, why do we believe it? Well, Jesus spoke to my heart. Well, that's great. But, and like I said earlier, that's, that's a reasonable thing. You can claim the subjective experience, and we'll talk about that more later. But at the end of the day, it boils down to whether or not we believe that Jesus Christ raised from the dead, and that is ultimately a historical claim. And if we're going to explain to people why we believe, yeah, the personal aspect of it is cool, but we need to be able to present, a, like I said, a reasonable defense, an apologia, 
as the Apostle Peter said, of why we believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead because, you know, this claim was <laughs> something at the end of the day uh, that the Apostle Peter was very concerned about and it's something he spent his uh, entire adult life explaining. Well, you know, I think at the end of the day when it comes to proving the, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a real historical event, um, we need to look at the witness testimony because, well, we don't have anything else <laughs> to really look at. Uh, we, we don't have Jesus walking down the street in robes of glory, uh, walking around and knocking on our door and saying, hey, can I come in? And that be something beyond a metaphor um, <laughs> for our spiritual experience. But we, since we don't have Jesus Christ walking around, since you know we claim he's ascended to heaven um, and sits currently at the right hand of God, what is the proof of Jesus Christ having actually raised from the dead? Well, I think the witness testimony first and foremost. And when I say the witness testimony, I mean the Bible, the New Testament. Um, and somebody might say, oh, you can't use the New Testament. You can't use the Bible as historical proof of um, the resurrection. Well, actually, yeah, you can. Especially once you realize what the actual nature of the New Testament actually is. The New Testament is merely a collection of 27 separate books and letters written by people who claim to have seen Christ or to have recorded the testimony of the people who claimed to see Christ. So it was written either by the people themselves or the associates of these people. Um, and is really, you know, in, in these documents, there's um, over 5,000 manuscripts in Greek. <laughs> written in the first couple centuries, copied in the first couple centuries, rather, um, from the New Testament that make up the historical evidence. And all those copies of the New Testament that we have today are written in Greek. They all, according to scholars, came from the first century. Many of them, many of them, within the first uh, 20 and 30 years of the time in which we claim that Jesus Christ was written risen from the dead, and that is something that that not even the most militant atheist scholar will ultimately dispute. Um, even the most militant atheist New Testament scholar today admits that these documents were largely uh, written in the first century and in the first decades. Now, you might get into some very technical things about um, you know historical criticism of those documents and how they came into being um, and you know how they were copied and passed down uh, to the present day that's another topic for another day um, but I would just simply put out there that you have these documents you have these documents claiming to be written by individuals who claim to have seen the actual risen Jesus Christ from the day from the dead first uh, John chapter 1 um, the, the Apostle John says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our own eyes, and what we have looked at and touched with our own hands concerning the word of life. This was written by a man who claimed to have heard, to see, to touch Jesus Christ. Um, you have the Apostle Peter uh, who said that we did not cleverly devise tales and make, to make known to you, 
uh, but we talked about the Lord Jesus Christ, who we were eyewitnesses of, his majesty. And he says in Peter that when he received honor and glory from the Father, such an utterance was passed and made unto the majestic glory, that this is my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And he says, we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So, you know, you have this book these that consists of 27 uh, documents written by eyewitnesses or the associates of these eyewitnesses who claim to have seen Jesus Christ risen from the dead. They say they saw, they say they heard, they say they touched Jesus Christ. And you can only do one of a couple things if, regarding these historical documents. You can either um, say that these documents were written by liars or somebody suffering from mass delusion. But that's the only two options. You can't dismiss the historicity of the New Testament and the time in which they were actually written and who they were written about. They were written as documents uh, by people who claimed to be preserving the eyewitness testimony of Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. So you can't dismiss merely the eyewitness testimony as, oh, it's just the Bible. Well, yeah, it's the Bible, and I understand it's a religious document, and that, you know, even though it was written in the first century, um, it was, you know, compiled ultimately over time. It took several centuries for the church to, you know, finally to put an official stamp on, well, this is the books that we're considering, considering canonical, uh, and that we're going to pass around as the official uh, teachings of the apostles and, and their associates, you know, so it may have taken several centuries for them to, you know, bound the documents together as one volume, but they were originally 27 volumes of documents uh, that were copied and circulated for centuries prior to their official bounding by the church. Uh, but anyway, you can read more about stuff like that and F.F. Uh, Bruce uh, New Testament scholar has some awesome things to say about the canon of Scripture and how it came into being. If you're ever interested in that, uh, maybe I'll believe uh, reference them in the show notes if you want to check it out at jimmystable.com or on iTunes. So anyway, after that, there is the fact of the empty tomb and the persecution of early Christians. Um, if these eyewitnesses were liars or delusionals, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus Christ has been claimed to be crucified, and we still have an empty tomb. We still don't have a body. <laughs> if Jesus wasn't raised um, at any point in history, then and the, the apostles were, and the eyewitnesses of the early church um, that claimed to have seen Jesus were merely um, delusional, or if they were liars, then the political and religious leaders that wanted to refute the claims of early Christians could have simply produced the corpse of Jesus Christ and silenced their testimony and silenced their delusions. Because they knew where he was crucified and they knew where he was buried. But they never produced his body and the reason for that simply is because it wasn't there. Now, some of them tried to, according to the New Testament, say the disciples came and stole the body, and that's why it wasn't there. And that was a rumor circulated early uh, in the first century, by the way. Um, 
But, you know, the New Testament also points out that, hey, there were guards there uh, that were assigned to protect the body of Jesus. Um, so if uh, the apostles, you know, decided to steal the body as some great uh, trick <laughs> and hide him somewhere, uh, then, you know, at the end of the day, there were guards that were protecting it who were, um, you know, could have been executed for their failing to protect the, the tomb of Jesus. Uh, so instead of, though, of producing the body of Jesus, they, you know, the Jewish and Roman leaders refused uh, to believe. And they, according to the scriptures, um, you know, decided to persecute the early Christians instead. Instead, they decided to throw them in jail and beat them and tell them not to talk about Jesus. And eventually they decided we need, they needed to start killing early Christians in response to the claim that Jesus Christ had been resurrected. And they did all this instead of merely producing a body. They could have avoided all the mess and all the politics and all the drama and the killing of people if they would have simply produced a body. But at no time did they actually do this. Um, and then you have... Uh, individuals like the Apostle Paul, who um, you know claimed to have been one of these persecutors and to have his own eyewitness account and encounter with Jesus uh, that turned him from a violent persecutor of Christians to a preacher of the faith he once tried to destroy. Uh, and men would later persecute him over that faith, leading to multiple imprisonments over many years. Uh, and he would suffer many beatings and um, eventually, uh, under the reign of Nero, uh, according to history, um, the Apostle Paul was eventually beheaded for his faith. And in one account of his beheading, um, the Apostle Paul is said to have run to his chopping block where he was to be executed as ultimate testimony to his faith in Christ. So, at the end of the day, uh, in the face of great persecution, the eyewitnesses uh, of the individuals claiming to have seen Jesus Christ raised from the dead, they maintained their testimony, and they maintained their testimony under great duress, under great persecution, uh, even to the point of being imprisoned and being killed for their faith. But you know, if it was all simply a lie, if it simply stolen the body of Jesus and moved him somewhere else and had the Roman guards, you know, uh, help them in the process <laughs> if, if, they, if that had actually happened at some point one of those guys they would have cracked and they could have easily recanted and said oh we made it up it's all a lie had nothing to do with this whatsoever uh, this is just a story we've been fabricating um, and or it was a delusion that we all experienced um, and uh, none of this really happened but they didn't recant their faith. They didn't change their testimony. And they continued their testimony to the point of death, testifying that Jesus Christ was alive just as they said he was. And you know, some people can be dismissive of things like that. But at the end of the day, I know I can't personally be dismissive of that. And that's something I have to take into account. That this this isn't just some fancy story that we made up, but this was a story that men claimed to have seen and experienced uh, the risen Christ, and it was a story that they were ultimately willing to hold until the point of their own deaths. And, 
you know, they could have been crazy. <laughs> they could have been absolutely stark raving mad. And that would be, you know, the, the ultimate uh, rebuttal that people would make um, regarding the Christian faith is that, well, you know, they were either liars or delusional and they had some, you know, deep emotional grievous experience after their Messiah that they so loved was crucified. Um, but, you know, I don't find that very reasonable to believe that that many men, that many people uh, held to that testimony, held to that belief, um, and that they were just all delusional or liars. Because I read the New Testament, and I read the New Testament, I don't think, man, these men are just a bunch of delusional idiots. You know, I see individuals, rather, who are very reasonable, um, who are uh, dedicated, who are passionate about what they believe, and uh, they spent the, the entirety of their adult life uh, telling that story to others and making sure that uh, people lived according to the faith that Christ had ultimately came and preached and taught. Um, so we have, I think we have to wrestle with that. Uh, and it's something that shouldn't be easily dismissed. And, you know, it would bother me that anybody would <laughs> reasonably dismiss that um, because it's a very unique claim. In fact, that goes into our next proof of the, the resurrection of Jesus. And I owe this proof uh, idea to a recent scholarly development, uh, at least recent to my knowledge, um, uh, from uh, famous New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. Who, um, and I just want to summarize here basically what N.T. Wright taught regarding a proof of uh, the historical claim of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he writes, says, in ancient Judaism, that all the theologies about the Messiah that developed at the time had everything to do with a conquering king uh, and priestly figure who would overthrow the Romans by force and cleanse the temple um, and restore uh, all the temple to its glory uh, and restore the corrupt priesthood and that sort of thing. Um, they, the, 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 the expectations at the time about the Messiah ultimately that the Messiah would be an insurrectionist that would lead an armed rebellion uh, against the pagan army that was occupying their land. Um, they never thought or in any way anticipated that there would be a Messiah that was nothing but peaceful, taught them to love their enemies, that they would suffer, be crucified, and ultimately bodily resurrected. This was a novel idea, and T. Wright teaches. Um, and no Jew until the time of Jesus had taught or expected or experienced such a Messiah. Um, if you were to read Josephus and other accounts um, in the New Testament, um, ultimately all the would-be Messiahs that we learn about uh, in, during uh, Second Temple Judaism in the first century, they ultimately had a Messiah that was very different than the Messiah that Jesus uh, claimed to be and that Christians spoke of. Um, and you have to consider strongly this this very Jewish context in which Jesus and the early Christians found themselves. Um, because the, the early Christians began to preach that not only had Jesus been crucified, um, but that he had been resurrected from the dead. And N.T. Wright says there is no reason to believe that this belief would have ever come into existence in ancient Judaism unless it had this event had actually happened to a man named Jesus. Because had Jesus not actually been crucified, and Jesus had not actually come back to life, the followers of Jesus at this time, who were 
99% Jewish, um, and who live in a very Jewish world, um, they had no theological basis to ever expect such of a Messiah. All Jewish theology in Second, Second Temple Judaism in the first century, and still to this day, teaches that the Messiah would be somebody who would ultimately overthrow the pagans and establish Judaism as the center of the world. Uh, and they didn't have any notion of a crucified Messiah. And they didn't have any notion that such a crucified Messiah would be brought back to life. So you might ask yourself then, why is it that these deeply Jewish people who, who, who had all the messianic expectations that only Jews would have in that first century, and, and those expectations would have been nothing but according to the theology of their times, how is it that all these Jews all of a sudden believed that their Messiah who got crucified was raised to life? Because all the other Jewish insurrectionists that claimed to be Messiah, when they saw their messiahs were crucified, none of them ever said that they were resurrected from the dead. In fact, all of them remained dead and very dead. And all the would-be followers of these would-be messiahs um, back in first century Judaism, all of them gave up hope that the person that they had believed in was the messiah that they claimed to be. They abandoned their faith when their messiahs were crucified in first century Judaism because they had no expectation of a resurrected messiah. So how is it then, N.T. Wright would argue, that all of these first century Jews believed all of a sudden that their Messiah was resurrected unless that event had actually happened and that they themselves were surprised by a resurrected Messiah. So unless this, unless this actually happened, why did this story even begin to generate in the first place? Because there's no way, according to N.T. Wright, that first century Jews could have believed in a resurrected Messiah because there was no theology for it whatsoever in the first century of Judaism and second temple Judaism. It just didn't exist. So this claim is unique and is radical at the time. It is without parallel whatsoever. And I think that is a pretty powerful historical argument for the, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ that, um, and it, it might see, seem somewhat circular in, in some way, then I can see how it could be, you know, categorized as such. But it's something that needs to be taken serious, I think. And I think it is a very powerful uh, proof that N.T. Wright argues uh, in his writings elsewhere. Um, and he is, you know, above all, uh, one of the greatest scholars of uh, our generation and has an immense knowledge of first century Judaism. Uh, so if you wish to challenge N.T. Wright on this point about what first century Jews believed in Second, second Temple Judaism uh, and what they believed about messiahs, you know, go look up N.T. Wright and challenge him. He's still alive. Uh, go to England and, uh, you know, take it to him. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, some people have tried to, but they're really, they, they just fall back to trying to dismiss uh, the same arguments that uh, many Christians have made uh, for centuries regarding Jesus and the claim that uh, he was resurrected from the dead. Um, there really isn't, I think, any reasonable argument against this. Uh, so I put it out there as a pretty strong argument uh, that if you're into 
really historical proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, while the fact that his first century followers claimed to have seen him when there would have been no basis for them to make that claim uh, in the first century is a, a pretty powerful thing. So consider that uh, argument very strong. Finally, <laughs> finally, we're getting here. Thank you for staying with me. It's been an hour, I know. There's the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, all these arguments are fine and good at the end of the day. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it ultimately comes down to in our preaching and defending of the gospel and sharing of our faith. And as we think about what we believe and why we believe it, we have to make a lot of room for the Holy Spirit. Because all these arguments at the end of the day will require a leap of faith. And according to the Apostle Paul in Romans, faith comes by hearing uh, the word of God. And that faith is something that ultimately can only be infused and grown and nourished uh, in the life of an individual through the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Few of us believe the gospel simply because we were diligent students of science and philosophy and history and simply said, hey, all this makes sense in the same way that two plus two equals four. I don't think too many of us, if anybody, really has a true saving faith um, simply because of that. Uh, rather, it is the work of the Holy Spirit in us and in others that ultimately helps us to make that leap of faith and to have the beliefs that we do as Christians. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-5, through 5, he said, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come into superior, with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. For I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So I think we really need to consider that because, you know, as much as we can offer a reasoned faith, you know, a, a, and defend our faith from intellectual uh, standpoint and historical standpoint, at the end of the day, our faith cannot rest on the wisdom of man and lofty persuasive words of wisdom, but must ultimately rest on a demonstration of the Spirit of God and of the power of God. Uh, so that we can testify as to why we believe what we believe. And that needs to be part of what we explain in, in our faith. Um, me personally, I know uh, I had my own intellectual struggles and doubts in a as a teen. Um, and in Bible college, on top of it. In fact, when I started reading some of the historical criticisms and scholarly criticisms, especially from very uh, highly liberal uh, atheistic scholars, New Testament Bible scholars, uh, I had my doubts about things. I had my doubts about reading Genesis and, and making Genesis make sense in light of evolutionary theory and, and people who claim that Noah couldn't have fit all the animals in the world onto the ark. Um, and, you know, some of the hyper critical textual criticism I was reading about and, and alleged contradictions in the Bible. Um, and I know in my own life that one night I went to bed. You know, I even had my serious doubts as if I would be a Christian because of the doubts I had regarding my faith. But one night I, I went to bed doubting, you know, these things. Um, but I ultimately realized that at the end of the day, all the things I believed and 
you know, about evolution, about the Bible, about Genesis, about Noah's Ark, about, you know, the things we read about Joshua and Judges and, you know, the New Testament and all the miracles and, you know, the second coming, all these things that you could sit there and doubt about the Bible. <laughs> um, and the, the, the issue of suffering and injustice and, and pain and, and all that stuff. Um, I utterly realized that it all came down to Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. And I knew in my heart of hearts that if I believed that Jesus Christ was alive, then I could trust God to sort out the rest. And I can't claim as a Christian and as somebody who's been to Bible college and seminary that I have a perfect explanation for, for all the troubling things that you could rightly point out about the Christian faith or things you could point out about the Bible or issues about pain and suffering and philosophical things and, and, and historical things and scientific things. You know, all these things are there, are, there is room for legitimate criticism <laughs> there really is and, and I'm just being intellectually honest there is room for legitimate criticism but at the end of the day I've realized that my faith ultimately hinges upon Jesus Christ being raised from the dead and I believe that not only because of my personal experience and, and, and subjective religious experience that I began to have with the Lord as, as a teenager and, and, and continued experiences in my walk in faith over the years, um, but I look at the reasonable arguments that can be looked at about our faith from a philosophical standpoint, a historical standpoint, an evidentiary standpoint, and I look at these things and I say, yes, this makes sense to me. This this is reasonable to me. Is it evidence that demands a verdict and you know 100% proves everything? No. It doesn't make it all nice and neat and perfect and something I can put a bow on. You know, I, I think there's still room to wrestle. And, you know, I still make room for the possibility that as I continue to study my faith and grow my faith, I, I still make room for the possibility that, you know, maybe I could discover some truth that ultimately, you know, convinces me that this has all been a lie, this has all been a sham. And I remain open to that possibility. And I remain open to the, the arguments because at the end of the day, the truth is the only thing that matters um, regarding these things. Because if, you know, if, if the claims of Christianity are not true, then I don't want to believe them. If Jesus is still dead, or he even never existed to begin with, but if Jesus is still dead and he's not alive, then I have no interest in being a Christian one second longer at all. So if, if you want to toss out an argument, well, toss out an argument. Make an appeal to me, Jimmy at Jimmy'sTable.com on Facebook, on Twitter. Uh, you know, in real life and personal life, if you know me and you want to talk to me about God and save me from faith <laughs> and Christianity and Jesus and the Bible and God, you know, feel free to make those arguments to me. I, I remain open uh, to wherever the truth may ultimately lead. But it's so far in this point in my life, based off the things I have read, based on, and I've read a lot. <laughs> Uh, and I've read some deeply critical things uh, over the years, you know. But if you want to make those arguments to me, I, I remain open to them. Um, but uh, based off my own examination of philosophy and history and the evidence of the Christian faith, at the end of the day, I've come to the conclusion that I can believe 
that my own subjective experience uh, of, of Jesus Christ in the gospel, that it's uh, a reasonably based thing. And it's a historical thing. It's a thing that actually happened in real life. Um, and that this isn't just some fantasy, this isn't just some sort of delusion, uh, but that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, and this was confirmed by the eyewitnesses who have said they saw them, they saw him, they touched him, they heard him, they witnessed him, they experienced him. And, and that's good enough for me. So anyway, everybody, this is Jimmy. This has been episode six about defending your faith. I hope I've given you some tools to not only defend, you know, to encourage you to, to know what you believe as a Christian, but why you ultimately believe it at the end of the day. Um, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, I'd love some feedback. Feel free to leave ratings on iTunes. Share this uh, podcast with friends and family. Uh, subscribe uh, through my website, jimmystable.com, on iTunes, on Spotify. Uh, follow on Facebook. Follow on Twitter. Give me a shout-out. Let me know what you think. I uh, love you. Thank you for taking time to listen uh, and having these conversations uh, with me about life, faith, culture, and sometimes food. And I really do promise, folks, there's going to be some food. I'm looking into some video recording equipment uh, so that I can have my wife uh, <laughs> record and produce uh, some, some how-to-cook videos uh, for you all to enjoy. So look out for those in the near future, I hope I can start producing them maybe in the next month or so. So take care, everybody, and have a good day.